Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives where you can listen to every episode we've ever done going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today is April 16th, 2013, and my guest is James Galbraith of the University of Texas. His latest book is Inequality and Instability. James, welcome to Econ Talk. Uh, good to be with you. Before I get started, I want to mention I recently hosted an event at Butler University that was co-sponsored with Liberty Fund. The event was called Capitalism, Government, and the Good Society. Richard Epstein, Mike Munger, and Robert Skidelsky spoke on the topic, and then I moderated a conversation between the three of them. Today's guest, James Galbraith, was supposed to make that a quartet, but weather intervened, and he wasn't able to arrive in time for the program. There will be a very nice video of the event produced by John Popola. When it's available, we'll put up a notice at the EconTalk homepage, and I'll tweet on it. I remind you that you can follow me on Twitter at EconTalker, E-C-O-N-T-A-L-K-E-R, and uh, we may get an EconTalk podcast out of it. But in the meanwhile, I'm happy to have scheduled this interview with James Galbraith so that listeners can get a sense of his worldview. So let's get started. Our topic today is inequality, but we're going to get into some other issues as well. Now, James, you have a very different view on the topic uh, compared to either the what I would call the mainstream view on the left or the right. Many on the left argue inequality is partly caused by a lack of progress by the median worker since the 1970s. Uh, the average person has been left behind, and so it's not just inequality that we need to worry about. It's stagnation. On the right, when we talk about inequality, the argument you often hear is that and this is certainly a common view among many economists, left and right, that the growth in inequality over time is due to technological change, differences in productivity that have been biased against low education, low skill workers. Now, what's wrong with those arguments in your opinion? Uh, I think in particularly the case of the second, uh, they start from a, um, an, a hypothesis which was framed before there was any factual foundation or body of evidence against which one could judge it. Uh, the way you characterize the way you've characterized the first uh, uh, position, it's really not about inequality at all, but rather tying up the term into a larger set of concerns about um, the stagnation of of, of, of wage growth. Um, and I think that's a substantially different set of issues. Uh, my approach, how does my approach differ? Uh, I've been working on this for oh, between 15 and 20 years. Um, and from the beginning, uh, I realized that if you wanted to speak sensibly about the subject, you had to uh, enrich the available uh, body of measurement uh, in order to be able to get a clearer picture of what's been going on both in the United States and the wider world. And that's been the foundation of now three books uh, on the topic of which inequality and stability is the latest. Well, let's take uh, each of those claims of the left and right. And I certainly agree with you that the claim I attributed to the left uh, does conflate inequality with what you might call middle class progress or middle class prosperity or the middle class period. But I think in our debate uh, as a nation uh, out in the world, I hear that uh, all the time. Those issues do get uh, mixed together, and I think it, it is um, – 
it, it's a, it's unfortunate because I think they are two different issues, but they do get mixed together. So let's start with the uh, with the uh, this argument about technological change. It seems reasonable. We see if we look at the growth of um, say income over time measured by college or lack of college or high school diploma or no high part you know no diploma but uh, some high school. Uh, there are large differences in the growth rates over time in those in those numbers. Why do you think that those are not important? Do you think those are important? Or are those numbers wrong? The, I think the mis- the the mistake comes from beginning the analysis by s- dividing up your uh, sample population according to uh, the reported educational credential, and then treating that as the uh, treating those groups as the primary units of analysis. Um, fundamentally, that's not going to tell you uh, if it turns out that something else was decisive in differentiating uh, uh, incomes of of people who happen to have these different educational credentials. This approach to the analysis is not going to allow you to discern that. Um, and it turns out that if you start with a much more eclectic approach to the uh you know, to the primary information set to the classification uh you can distinguish the things that are important from things that aren't and there simply isn't any evidence that uh that inequality is being driven by educational status as such uh clearly it's quite possible indeed the case that people with higher level educational credentials also tend to be people uh who have uh uh you know access to uh to kinds of employment and to kinds of asset holdings which will lead them to have very rapidly growing incomes and be the beneficiaries of uh of um uh be on the on the winning end of a rise in measured inequality uh but it's quite a it's it's, it's that's a far cry from saying that this is in some sense causally related to their educational status it's not so you're arguing that the let me stick with the standard argument for a minute the standard argument is that as globalization has increased and as technological change has encouraged the information economy people with High levels of education are particularly benefited by that move toward the information economy. People at the low end of the education distribution are competing because of globalization with low-wage workers outside the United States. So they have trouble uh, sustaining any wage growth. The high end is benefiting from the increased demand for their services. And that's that, I would say, is the standard Economist view. I have my own issues with right. it, but but what that that view that view has been in circulation since the early 1990s, um, when it was advanced in a very prominent article in the American Economic Review, uh, and at that time, uh, as I said, the evidentiary foundation for it was practically nil. What you had were uh, some uh, surveys at widely disparate times uh, showing that. Uh, uh, that income inequality had increased, increased between the 70s and the late 80s, for example. Uh, and it was very hard to know. Uh, first of all, this is data ex- restricted only to the United States, so it's a very, uh, uh, you know, from the larger standpoint of economic analysis, kind of provincial uh, perspective. Uh, but secondly, given that 
that the information set was so limited, you really couldn't tell when the increase in inequality had occurred specifically uh, or link it to the you know, the changes in the structure of the American economy over the course of the 70s and 80s. So what I did in the first book that I did on this, which was a book called Created Unequal, A Crisis in American Pay, uh, that appeared in 1998, was to construct new inequality measures based upon uh, data from the Bureau of Labor Statistics, Employment and Earnings data sets, uh, which enabled one to... Um, basically track out the rise of inequality in pay structures uh, on a year-to-year basis. Uh, and it became very clear from that that the rise in inequality was a temporarily limited phenomenon, that things had been driven up very dramatically by the recessions of the early 1980s, uh, that, that, that what you would people who lived through that period knew to be the dominant fact of the time, which was that a lot of well-paid blue-collar workers were losing their jobs, was in fact the uh, you know the thing that's most closely associated with rising inequality in the wage structure, uh, and that's clearly uh, it's a deep stretch to link that to their to educational status. And the fact was that there were well-paid unionized jobs all across the American Midwest that got uh, wiped out uh, in the surge of, first of all, in the recession and the, the surge of, uh, of, uh, of, of globalized trade that followed it. But mainly it was the recession of the early 1980s that, uh, that you can see very clearly in the data. So let's, before we get to the larger picture that you have to tell with your data, I want to go to the argument that I've that we <clears throat> that I mentioned earlier from the left, which again is also a somewhat of a mainstream view, I think, among many economists left and and somewhat to the right, which is that putting inequality itself to the side, that there has been middle class stagnation for the last thirty or forty years. You're critical of that view. Why? I would say I'm skeptical of it. Uh, the the median wage uh, as a technical concept is a very kind of slippery entity, uh, and one can one can easily imagine a world in which every individual has a growing income uh, from work, wage wage income over their lifetime as a result of seniority and promotions and so forth, uh, and yet the median wage, which is constantly uh, and yet the median wage remains remains stagnant. Uh, and the reason for that would be that, that people at the high end, at the end of their careers, leave the workforce and retire. And people who come into the labor force uh, as young people come in at lower wage rates. Uh, so the, uh, the population, that the person who is at the median is changing all the time. Um, and what ha- one of the things that did happen uh, in the United States over particularly the 80s and the 90s, is that you got um, a great many older uh, white male workers who uh, retired, left the labor force, um, or were forced out again in the in the uh, in the slump in the early 1980s in particular, and then again in the late 1980s. Uh, and a great many people came into the labor force, mostly in service jobs, who were uh, younger, uh, predominantly. Or, more predominantly female, uh, members of minority groups, and immigrants, all of whom are going to enter the labor force at relatively low, below uh, average wages. And the effect of that is going to be to pull the median, which is the middle, uh, the pay paid to the 
So the worker at the 50th percentile, the middle worker, is going to pull that uh, uh, to the left. So you are going to um, uh, have a situation in which the median is stagnant, but it's not necessarily reflective of any individual's experience. Yeah, I make that point about uh, every uh, three episodes of this podcast, as well as at my uh, my blog, Cafe Hayek, but um, it doesn't seem to dent the mainstream, nor has your critique of the standard technological change view. Uh, so I, I share in any frustration that you have over this. Yeah, I don't think it's a political point, actually. I, I, I think that uh, it's just a suggest that these very compact statistical representations of what's going on are not very informative. So give us your view. Uh, how would you summarize in recent decades what's happened to the distribution of, of incomes in the United States um, based on, on the, the different pieces of work you've done? Okay, let's What's causal? And, and give yeah. us some – and any stylized yeah. facts too. Sure. Let's distinguish a couple of things. Uh, one of them would be the distribution of pay, which is to say what people get in return for, for, for labor, for work hours, wages and salaries. Um, if you will isolate that element, and that's leaving aside the component of income that doesn't come from work, that comes from asset ownership. If you, if you just isolate the pay from work, it, you find that it tracks very closely to the unemployment rate. Uh, and the reason for that is that uh, you know, people who are, I suppose, like you and me, paid on a salary basis, our uh, incomes don't vary very much with, uh, uh, with, with economic conditions. But people who are paid on an hourly basis uh, and whose hours vary uh, from week to week depending on economic condition are very sensitive to economic uh, situation and in a week period they are their weekly earnings which is what's actually being measured tends to tend to fall and in a strong period it tend to rise and so the pay structure as measured which is really a structure of weekly earnings uh, tends to become more compressed and egalitarian when the unemployment rate is at say four percent or below as it was for example in the late 1990s you can see this very clearly in the data now, if you're looking at incomes, the picture is entirely different because the picture is governed. Uh, the inequality of incomes is governed uh, by the contribution made by uh, by capital income, uh, by stock options realizations and capital gains and related. Also, incomes paid by f firms, which are basically drawing on venture capital uh, and paying out uh, their uh, their the the proceeds of, 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 of that kind of investment to their employees in hopes of, of breaking into new markets. And so you have incomes which are extraordinarily concentrated in a small number of sectors and parts of the country. Uh, the financial sector is always very important uh, because it's the source of the funds and it's earning the fees on all of this. And then whatever it happens to be financing at any given time is important. So in the late 1990s, you see this in the technology sector, and in the uh, mid-2000s, you see this in, uh, uh, in, in, uh, in, in real estate. Uh, and it shows up very clearly in the data, and it's not, it's not ambiguous about what's going on. Um, but that income inequality, which is, say, driven by, uh, a, uh, uh, 
by capital incomes is really reflecting the experience of a very small piece of the population. I mean, uh, one of the things I do in the book is to isolate uh, how many counties it would take to make this effect go away altogether, and the answer is 15. Yeah, that's rather remarkable. <clears throat> and those 15 are concentrated – I remember. In the late, this is from 1993 to 2000, and these are uh, these are the you Manhattan, New York, New York is always an important piece of the picture, uh, and the other big piece in the 1990s is Silicon Valley and and, and King County, Washington, Seattle. Uh, so uh, it's um, it's it as I say, looking at the data and breaking it out in this way gives you a pretty clear and unambiguous picture of what. What's going on? Yeah, I found that fascinating. So let me just try to restate it. If you take 15 counties in the United States and you take them out of the data, and these counties would be from where I would summarize it as the where the financial and high tech sectors had a strong in the 1990s. That's right. Yeah. Had a strong role to play in in employment and and wages. You take those out of the data, then between 1993 and 2000, you see no change in inequality in the United States. No change in income inequality measured between counties. Now, uh, some of the, some counties are very large, and there are obviously increases in inequality that would still be within counties. But the component that exists between counties is a very important one, uh, and uh, you can isolate it in the data very easily. Uh, it tracks the overall inequality measure very well. Uh, let's say something that's done from the census, uh, and you can show that the extent to which uh, incomes booked in this very small number of places are really driving the, the, the changes. So going back to your earlier point, that was a time when unemployment was relatively low. <clears throat> and what was pushing uh, the change in inequality that did exist were increases in the demand for the services of people who were really good at computers and, and finance, right? Well, it's it, it's really – increases in the demand. A lot of these firms didn't never develop markets. It's really the financing of the investment of those firms uh, and the incomes paid out from uh, those investment flows. That's driving it. Um, the uh, Markets are developing at this point, but it's not all of these firms, in fact, perhaps even not many of them, are actually making their money out of, uh, out of cash flow from the public. I'm thinking the workers, though, whose skills were in demand and whose salaries were being paid accordingly uh, because there was, they were scarce. If you happen to be employed, and this is a, a tiny uh, number of, of people, if you happen to be employed uh, by one of these emerging firms that was a favorite of uh, Wall Street at the time, of course, you're, you, they, people were falling all over themselves to bid for your, uh, your services. Uh, but it was even better to be an owner of those companies or sure. chief executive uh, because then you were then you were participating directly in the uh, uh, in the rise of the stock prices. Right, and that's at the very high end, presumably. Right, sure, it's at the top. And these people, yeah. these are people whose names we know because right. they're part of their corporate strategy <laughs> you know was to are, advertise, yeah. advertise how rich they were. Yeah. Which is fine. Um, yeah, I, I often like to point out that we we should care about. Uh, why people get really rich, uh, if we're going to worry about it at all. And somebody who gets really rich by developing a really great piece of software or a company that makes my life better or a basketball player I really like to watch or a singer I enjoy listening to is different from a Wall Street exec who perhaps has done nothing productive uh, and has not made my life better. I, I would make that distinction. Um, 
in that particular case, the 1990s, as I think you point out in your book, uh, in the tech sector, there was a lot of investment made that turned out to be somewhat valuable. Uh, some of it failed, of course, and those firms disappeared and their owners lost all their stock money, and but others thrived, and the ones that thrived tended to be the ones who made the world a better place. Uh, up to a point. I mean, one could also argue that some thrived because they had extraordinary protection of their uh, uh, of their patents uh, and uh, other intellectual property, uh, and that uh, uh, they managed to fight off the Justice Department's antitrust division very effectively. Uh, and again, these the, the identity of these country, companies is not a secret. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, some of them are not not that well loved by the customer community. Which ones are you thinking of? Do you want to? Oh, gee, just get. I like a lot of them. I love. <laughs> I, I like Google. I like Apple. I like. Um, I probably like Cisco if I know enough about them. Uh, Intel. Um, some of them I. In the tech sector, yes, maybe not as loved as others, but I think there's I think there's a large company up in Seattle in that the you haven't mentioned by name, yeah. by name, which is uh, which has at least a reputation of having a, let's there's, say an ambivalent relationship yeah, with its customers. They're still here though, and thriving. they are indeed. Yeah. They are indeed. Let's look across industrial sectors because it's a remarkable um, aspect of your findings that you didn't highlight. I, I was struck by it, and maybe I, I misinterpreted it, but. Uh, you find in you looked at two different eras of uh, economic uh, change. You looked at I think the ninety three to two thousand. Then you look at two thousand to two thousand and six or seven, and you look across indu- instead of looking across space, which is what we just talked about. You look across industrial sectors, and you find that uh, there are very large differences in in um, how different sectors have 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 performed. Uh, well, there there are, of course, um, and the um, after the, the the Nasdaq bust in two thousand, uh, you can see um, the rise and you know the rise and fall of, of, of several several little cycles that occur uh, during the during the George W. Bush years, of which the first was driven by by the wars, uh, by the reaction to nine eleven, by the invasion of Afghanistan, and eventually by the war in Iraq. And one of the things that shows up both sectorally and uh, geographically is that this funnels money into uh, enterprises that are closely linked to the government uh, and in locations that are basically circle the national capital, which becomes at that point uh, the great locus of income growth in the country. It's a, a very strange phenomenon for what was ostensibly a conservative Republican administration, but there it is. The, well, government got a lot bigger under George Bush. It's, it's, um, cer- it's cer- it certainly did, and any any country which is uh, launching uh, major military operations is going to experience that. Um, and then the the, the, you know, the Iraq War is the peak of this. The first year of the Iraq War is the peak of this phenomenon because after that the the buildup doesn't it doesn't go away, but it doesn't continue to get larger, uh, and so its effect on the growth rate of the economy uh, basically washes out after that. And what you see that carries the economy forward into 2006, 2007 is, uh, is real estate. Uh, it is the construction and also the loans being made to increasingly uh, dubious uh, borrowers uh, that uh, eventually blows up in 2007, 2008. So the data that you're looking at in those analyses, 
is from the BEA, the Bureau of Economic Affairs. Correct. Yeah. And I was the one thing that's striking about it. Uh, I wasn't sure of the level of of the data, whether it's is it it's not county. It's it's county level. Yes, it is county. County level. There are two kinds of 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 uh, sort of resolutions here. One is geographical at the county level, so you have. Uh, you can map things out over the 3,150 counties that the country has. Uh, and the other is uh, by sector within states so that you can, again, look inside each state's boundaries at, uh, at the distribution across the various economic activities in that state. So when you're looking at this industrial, different industrial sectors, say you're looking to take one example. Let's say you're take, looking at finance. Uh, you're looking actually at a very different kind of data than is usually used in these um, in these kind of discussions. Usually, what people are looking at are individual or household, typically household data. Correct. Uh, yeah. Sometimes from tax returns, sometimes from government samples of various populations. Um, yeah, usually, usually the. the uh most of the other uh, other researchers working in this area, are, as you say, either working with uh, with with tax records or working with the current uh, population uh, survey. But you're looking at something that's, uh, in a way, in many ways, much more appealing. Which is, first of all, you're not looking at wages. You're getting a very complete picture of income that goes way beyond earnings. It includes uh, bonuses. It includes uh, dividends. And my understanding is that it's also based on payroll. There is that are, correct? Again, yes, two, two different kinds of data. Well, the, so let's stick with the industrial sector ones, the statewide right, data. That, that's pay, that's, that, that will be payroll data. So you have every firm in theory, every or at least a sample of firms in the state in, say, finance, uh, based on what they pay their workers in, inclusive of everything, not just wages. That's, correct? That's right, yes. Does it also include transfer payments at the statewide level? No. Okay, so this is this is com- I would call it compensation, although it doesn't. Yes. It does yeah, not pay, include. I assume pay is the word I use because it. it this is we are looking at what the, um, what the employing unit pays out. Right. It's to, what's dispersed. It it's, it's not. It's, it's not what the individual earns because correct. an individual might have multiple sources of income, multiple jobs, plus other assets. Uh, it's not what the household earns because the household may have multiple earners. Um, and there's no adjustment here for um, household size. In other words, it is not a measure which is directly related to individual or household welfare, uh, which is an important topic. It's not what I work on. Right. Uh, it's related to the structure, the the payment structure of the economy, uh, and that that has a real usefulness for a lot of questions that economists have been concerned with, including the one you mentioned earlier, which is what is the role of technology? Uh, the role of technology really, if you think about it theoretically, it's about what businesses will pay for specific jobs. Um, and if you have to approach that through, for example, what people are reporting as their incomes and tax records or what uh, a sample survey is reporting for household income, then you're really looking at it through a rather murky glass because uh, you're several layers removed from the, uh, from the effect of the technology on the structure of business. And you're also often missing types of payments and 
benefits that are not captured by some of the data that people like to focus on, such as wages or, or income. I mean, the, the, you don't include, if I, if I'm correct, you're not including, uh, vacation days. Are you, do you think those data include health benefits or do they only include health? I don't know what they include there. Uh, I don't think that they include health benefits. I would assume frankly, not. But that's, that's a, uh, Interesting. A question I'd have to, I'd have to double check. But what struck me when I looked at that, and so again to help the listeners who don't have the table in front of them, and I don't have it in front of me, but I remember it. What we're looking at here is is disbursement pay, that is pay, by sector, by industrial sector uh, across states over a period of time. So when I looked at the say two thousand to 2006 or 2007 changes by sector, I was struck by two things. One, I was struck by the enormous increases by sector for some of the sectors uh, where, where salaries – again, it's not salaries, sorry – where pay to workers within those sectors over time doubled in a very short period of time. That's correct, right? Yes. As a very large – you might say, well, well, you know, if you're – if we go back to the pre-internet, uh, in the heyday of the internet, it's not it's not surprising that people who could uh, successfully manipulate web pages and do the things that were in desperate demand. It's not surprising that those wages and salaries and incomes and benefits went up a lot. But this is across fairly wide definitions of sectors. So you you list, I think, fifteen high growth sectors. Is that is that am I remembering correctly? I think that's that's right. Yes. Um, they are, however, in relation to overall employment, fairly small. And so what, again, what we're picking up is the same phenomenon that described at the, at the geographic uh, level, which is that uh, the rise in inequality is really a matter of the increasing uh, difference between a small uh, favored sector that's experiencing a, a credit-driven boom uh, and the larger, the rest of the economy, uh, which includes almost all the rest of us, who are, you know, going along as before with experiencing very little direct effect uh, of, of of this phenomenon. But I was struck, and that's the point I wanted to raise. I was struck by you have a la- the last line of both these tables. One is the pre two thousand change, and one's the post two thousand change. The there's a line called all other sectors, and. There's huge growth in those in all the sectors, not compared to the top 15 or the top eight or six or whatever it is that grew the most. But I was struck by how much growth there was across the economy. And I mention that again because we're often told that you know nobody's benefiting from these changes except people at the top. I accept the idea that there are sectors that are that are benefiting a lot more than others. But I was struck by how much change, positive change there was across the economy as a whole, outside the highest growth sectors? Oh, yeah, I don't know what to um, uh, say about those numbers. They're not that dramatic, and these are uh, all in nominal terms, so there's no inflation adjustment here either. Um, the, that was the, my the, next question. Yeah, I the, didn't the, remember. No, the, the, point, the point of the of the tables you're looking at is to permit the uh, you know the reader to get some sense of what the what the proportionate changes were in sectors so there was really no need to adjust them uh but no the all other sectors are both uh you know compared uh to the to the high growth sectors in these tables they're relatively low paid and 
their uh, their their nominal wage growth uh, is well in both cases you're looking at a phenomenon which is probably ordinary for a trough to peak uh, business cycle change. Uh, do you have that? Do you have guess. that table in yep. front of you? Yeah, six one and six two is what. Can you just read the bottom line of those two, or t- say what time period they are, and the, and, and give us the change? This is 1996 to 2001, um, and the all other sectors numbers 31,000 to 38,000, and 2000. And that's a 20. That's over 25 percent in five years. It's nominal, but inflation wasn't very high then. That's a, to me. Yeah, it's, but it's also it's it's also from a trough. Well, not a trough. Yes, yeah, so close to a trough to a peak. It's a it's a period of substantial business cycle expansion and and, and a major drop of unemployment. Um, and, and the, the same other one. Uh, 2003 to 2007, uh, so roughly 39,000 to roughly 44,000. So, yeah, again, uh, a 10 percent increase well, yeah. over over four years. That's two percent, three percent a year. Yeah. I don't think there's anything very remarkable about that. Well, it is to me just because of what we commonly hear. Uh, and, and I just, you know, obviously, this is a very complicated area. There's a lot going on. There's interactions when you know when we change one thing, we change other things that we can't hold constant. I just find it interesting how uh, pessimistic most people are about the state of, of our economy, even in good times. We're not in good times now, but yep. even in good well, times. Well, let's just looking at that first table, which is 96 to 2001, this was a very strong um, period for labor earnings. Um, the uh, unemployment rate went down to below 4% for, I think, four consecutive years, uh, and you had a lot of um, demand for hourly labor. Uh, so it, it, this was also the period when poverty rates, I mean, it's a, 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 a you know, well-known, re- remarkable moment of prosperity poverty rates uh, for minorities declined to historic lows. And, uh, a lot even in that things. later period, the 03 to 06, which a lot of people have described it as not much of a recovery after the 01 recession, um, that it, again, I think a lot of people believe was very that they, any gains that occurred in that period they may have been <laughs> temporary, obviously because of um, credit issues that we're going to talk about in a sec. But um, it's interesting to me how big those gains are. Um, well, they are, they people do experience uh, income gains and gains in the credit boom. Uh, I don't think anybody will look back on this oh three to oh seven period as a uh, golden age. Uh, <laughs> as a golden age, <laughs> no, uh, you can make an argument for the nineteen nineties uh, in that there was this technological transformation going on, and we're clearly. Everybody was living in the backwash of that, but the 2000s were looking at, on the one hand, the uh, the growth of government thanks to the wars, and on the other, the the impending real estate debacle. It's very hard to see uh, permanent economic benefits from either one of those. I agree. Let's let's go to the longer picture. If we go back to the uh, to 1980, say, or, or even into the 70s, uh, your suggestion then is that a lot of the uh, Changes in economic prosperity that 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 were that differed across groups, uh, depending on how close you were to um, to that credit increase of of various intensities across that time period. Is that accurate? For your yes, for, there's a real change in the driving forces behind the uh, behind American economic growth after 1980. Uh, before that, there is you could argue I think a fairly balanced. Uh, set of uh, institutional uh, spurs to growth. Uh, 
with the result that you get a growth path which is reasonably steady uh, and has both public and private components. Uh, after 1980, we become very heavily reliant on, on, on the credit cycle, uh, and the credit cycles become increasingly intense until you get the great uh, debacle at the end of the, of, um, of the last decade. So when you say credit cycle, what do you mean? I, I, the growth of, of basically of bank credit and associated uh, private sector uh, venture capital extensions and uh, uh, with, with the cycle coming when, when the flow stops, which it did in 2000 in the tech sector and in 2007 uh, in the real estate sector. So do you see that – what was going on differently in, in the pre-1980 credit cycle then? I'm uh, trying to understand what's different. About, is this a statement about monetary policy? You have a, you have policy, a stronger contribution. You have James, a stronger contribution. What? Is this a statement about monetary policy or other things going on? A, a lot of other things going on as well. Uh, monetary policy plays a much smaller role in the 50s and 60s than it came to play in the uh, in the 80s, uh, 70s, and 80s. Um, but uh, uh, in the 50s and 60s, you have. Uh, you have, first of all, the growth of the public sector. You have the extension of uh, of uh, social welfare programs in the in in the great society. You have um, a uh, uh, you have the, the the Treaty of Detroit, the uh, the strong presence of of collective bargaining institutions, which gave uh, gave organized labor a, a, a an increasing claim on resources as time went by. Um, and you have, uh, and then you also have uh, the growth of private sector credit. But the things are, not, no one of these phenomena is uh, dominant in this period. Um, and whereas after 1980, it's, it's basically labor is, has been neutralized. Uh, organized public, labor. Organized labor has yeah. been neutralized, so there's no, there's no further increase in, uh, in collective bargaining settlements. Uh, and the the welfare state, well, it, it's not uh, taken apart, but it doesn't grow uh, except one in a few isolated episodes. Um, Healthcare the, being the obvious example. Well, the Medicare Part yeah. D under George W. Bush, for example. Um, but you know, fundamentally, the, uh, the the institutional structure is isn't expanding after that, and so the 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 locus of growth really shifts to that which is driven by the financial sector. And you can see that very clearly in the data. So let's try to talk about that a little bit, and then let's talk about what policy issues are, are related to it. Um, my sympathy with your viewpoint, which is, you know, as you point out, as you admit in the book, is, is not a mainstream view, but seems very consistent with the data, at least the way you gather it and, and work with it. Uh, the part that I'm sympathetic with is that in my prof our profession of Academic economist, um, the rewards to being an academic economist have gone up quite a bit uh, since I've been a practicing economist, which is roughly since 1980. And I think you pretty much follow the same pattern as I do in terms of timing. It's about when your your career started. That's about right. Yes. And um, I like to think I'm a lot more productive uh, than I was, and I am more productive, but it's hard to understand why my skills are in such demand relative to what they would have been um, in a different world. I, I can't – and another way to take that out of the picture is to look at starting salaries in academic economics, and they've grown dramatically over the last uh, 30 years, and it's hard – 40 years, and it's it's hard to argue 
that that's because economists are so more, much more productive. Um, if anything, I think we're more dangerous. Uh, we are in high demand in academic life. We are part of an education system that likes econ- people like to major in economics. So I, when I look at my own situation, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how much is due to the fact that we subsidize education in a whole bunch of different ways versus how much of it is due to the fact that we subsidize finance, a field that competes with academic economics for people to work in on Wall Street. And um, what are your thoughts on that? Ah, well, this gets it to another very interesting domain of American sociology, doesn't it? Uh, I, I think the second explanation that there, the uh, economists are competing and having their salaries uh, pulled up by the business schools, which are having their salaries pulled up by their connection to the financial sector, is a is certainly an important piece of the picture. Uh, there is also the fact that um, and having lived through this transition, it's very visible to me that in the 50s and 60s, the young population of the country had an enormous sense of, of security and confidence about its future, which permitted people to have a great diversity of, uh, of um, aspirations. Uh, and uh, uh, that changed in the 1970s and 1980s. Insecurity went up dramatically as unemployment became a real threat. And that drove a great many people into, uh, uh, into, the, into a much more economically competitive um, uh, uh, Career paths, and so you see this in the rise of uh, of, of economics departments and business schools in, in colleges and universities. People go into them because they feel that 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 maybe rightly, maybe wrongly, that it's this is a it's a practical way to get yourself a career that makes money. Yeah. Um. So should we do something about this? This um. This this sensitivity of of incomes and um. In compensation to the credit cycle, to monetary policy, to or should we just what can we do, what can be done? If well, anything, I'm, what should be done? Do you, I, I, I'm inclined to favor stabilizing institutions and social insurance. Uh, that the when, particularly when you're moving into a period of stress, uh, the important thing is to maintain decent uh, floors. And decent uh, and stable, secure futures for people, which means covering them from the most extreme risks. Um, and I think that uh, this, the, the importance of this in our present political debate really focuses on Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, which have been uh, institutions which have come to define American working class, middle class life uh, by providing a uh, basically an inalienable floor that will keep you out of extreme poverty and has successfully done that for the uh, for for senior citizens and also for dependents and survivors uh, and providing uh, a couple of layers of uh, of protection against medical bankruptcy and against old age related bankruptcy and uh, which is what Medicaid basically achieves for the middle class. Protecting those programs from what are essentially predatory um, attacks, efforts to restrict and limit them so that other players can cherry pick from the uh, insurable population and make a little extra money 
is an extraordinarily important political task in my view. Um, and I would add to that, I'm very much in favor of, of uh, a strong uh, minimum wage, uh, which uh, should be substantially higher than it is now. Uh, and the reason for that is that it helps to set a standard uh, for the performance of the labor market, uh, which I think is something that we, we observe very clearly, particularly in the part of the country I happen to live in, uh, is, uh, is really undermined by allowing uh, a low wage standard to prevail in uh, for for uh, for the for workers at the low end of the scale. It's uh, uh, what you get is a a, a market which becomes. Uh, very insecure, very relatively unsafe, very hard to monitor and uh, protect on, on safety and health standards and causes a lot of other problems that would be basically uh, be greatly reduced if you had um, a, a much stronger minimum wage. Well, let's talk about those two pieces, the, the safety net and the minimum wage. The, on the safety net side, so do you think means testing Social Security and Medicare, which I think would easily make them – Solvent for the foreseeable future. Uh, are you against that or in favor of it? I am. I, I am very much against it. Uh, solvency for a government program cannot be distinguished from the solvency of the government itself. True. So I, I think treating the treating Social Security and Medicare as though they were some kind of private funds uh, is not a reasonable uh, approach. Well, at their current uh, levels, they're going to be hard to keep the promises that have been made. Well, only if you insist upon – well, first of all, that's debatable. But secondly, if, if you accept the, the pessimistic projections, it's only uh, if you insist that uh, you match the uh, 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 the payout to the to the FICA revenues for, the, for a very, very long period in the future. And I'm inclined to, uh, first of all, say it's not necessary to do that as an economic matter, certainly. And secondly uh, – even if you think it's the right thing to do politically, it's a problem that can be dealt with down the road. It doesn't have to – treating those projections as though they were some kind of dire situation at the present is a, is, is a clear mistake. You don't think there's but a leave, demographic, leave, think there's yeah, a demographic leave, problem with Social oh, no, I'm a ba- I've been in the census since 1950 – since 1960 when I was eight years old, uh, as has every other baby boomer, including you. The, yeah. the demographics have, have not uh, – the demographics actually have become more favorable since they were addressed in the 1983 Social Security changes because you've had more immigrants than, uh, uh, than were expected at that time. Uh, so th- those are not the issue. Uh, Why are you the, against uh, – let's, let's go back to the more the fundamental means, question. Means, you, means testing, means testing uh, is a very complicated problem, particularly for elderly people, because their means, their qualifying means uh, change all the time and would be adjusted to uh, – um, to accommodate whatever the mean test standard is. Uh, so it's not, a, first of all, it's, it's, a, it's a cumbersome uh, and unpleasant system, uh, which would give people kind of variable access to Social Security and Medicare. But secondly, we have a means test in the system. We have a perfectly good one. It's called the income tax. And if you want it, people to pay into the government in relation to their means, that's what a progressive income tax achieves. There's absolutely no need to layer onto that some kind of means test for whether you have to pay, uh, you know, uh, the cost of a catastrophic health incident, traffic accident, or uh, a heart attack or something of that nature. But I don't need a retirement safety net, and I'm happy to have paid for my grandmother when I was younger. 
I, I don't think uh, you are. You are, however, a person of great uh, philanthropic and charitable instincts, and it's, <laughs> our fellow citizens should not uh, be expected to rise to that standard because many of them don't. But. Uh, you've also made it harder for people to take care of themselves in their old age by taking more money from them than you otherwise than they otherwise. Uh... Oh no, no, no! What I mean, let's got to remember that I'd study inequality. Diversity is the essence of any population, and what we have out there amongst the elderly are a great many people who don't have children who would take care of them because they don't have children at all mm-hmm. or have children who can't take care of them for one reason or another, the main one being that the, even in all the best will in the world, those uh, uh, children have children of their own for who are a higher priority. Well, I'm talking about I, – I, I disagree with yeah. that for a different reason because I think, I think private charity would be a very good thing. But let's put that to the side and let's yeah, ask well, – we, we, had, we had private charity uh, it, up until the – uh, and we relied on private charity up until the uh, creation of the social security system in the 1930s. And the reality was that most old people didn't live very long. Uh, and I, I'm enough of an economist to believe that uh, uh, when you pay people to do something, they'll do more of it. And what social security does is to pay them to stay alive. And they're quite happy to take the money and live longer, which to my mind is just an excellent thing. I can't I, see why I don't see the causation. I don't see the causation quite as effectively ah. as you do. But the, the point <laughs> I was send making people, send people a check they eat. This keeps them alive. I don't think people good. died from lack of resources in 1930. I'm sorry. Oh, even sure old they did. people. Lots that, of old people. Lots of old people were suffered privation I, right up until the 70s. Perhaps, but we're a richer country than we were then. I just I don't see that. But my point is, I had a different point I was making, which is that you're taking money away from young people when they could be saving it. It's a not it's a non-trivial amount, and the Social Security system's been doing that for seventy something years, and that's made it harder for people to have. To, it made them easy. It made them more likely they'd need a safety net. Well, again, uh, just extending the argument I just made, uh, there are two kinds of working people. Uh, there are people who have parents that they would uh, otherwise support, and people who don't. I'm and talking for, about people supporting themselves, but hear me out. I'm in the second group. My parents have passed on. I no longer have uh, – they were never a burden on me, but uh, if they had been, they were no longer the case. But I still pay the payroll tax, which means I'm paying in to support Other the whole parents. population, everybody else's parents, which lowers the burden on everybody. It's a very reasonable system. Well, it raises the, the burden on you because you yes, have less money for your own retirement. Well, but it lowers the burden on people who would otherwise have a significant burden. So it seems to me that it's a very fair system, which is why it's so popular. I don't, <laughs> think, it's like fully, it. I don't think it's fully understood. So well, it might I be popular I'm, even if it were understood. I'm willing to accept that. <laughs> I think I'm people not, do understand it. That's mm, why they like it. What? Uh, I think people do understand it. That's why they like it. I'm what happy percentage, to it. What percentage of the U.S. Social Security? What percentage of the U.S. workforce thinks that their Social Security contributions, which I put in quotes, that come out of their paycheck every week are put aside for them. I think it's a non-trivial number. I'm sorry. I, I could have, be wrong. I, mean, I don't no, know I have, the number. I mean, it's, that's, a, that's a polling question. It's a rhetorical question. Anyway. It's a polling let's question. Move on to, I, I'm not a pollster. <laughs> let's move on to your second piece of your um, safety net, which is the minimum wage. So you want a higher minimum wage. How much higher? Do you have a rough idea? $12 is my number. Okay. Uh, on that, I'm joined by uh, the estimable conservative publisher of the American conservative magazine, Ron Unz. Lucky you. Now, why do you, do you, 
Is there any cost to that increase? You talked about what you thought the benefits were. Do you think there'd be any changes in employment for low-skilled workers? Oh, yes. No, it, it, the whole point is to help change the structure of the labor market at the low end. Uh, and so, yes, uh, for example, the, the, if you think about what would happen inside households, there would be some, uh, let's say, teenagers presently working at the minimum wage who would uh, uh, leave that labor market uh, because, in part, because their parents would be making more money if their parents were also low-end workers. Uh, so you'd get change reorganization. It, the real issue, which is the point of contention here, is whether this would mean a higher rate of unemployment uh, for low-end workers. Um, and we have now quite a lot of evidence uh, that, uh, you know, somewhat perhaps counterintuitively to uh, supply and demand trained economists, refutes that idea. Uh, a very, uh, you know, important experiment has been carried out since 1999 in the United Kingdom, where they didn't have a minimum wage, they introduced one, uh, and it has disappeared from political discussion in the UK. Uh, because not even the you know, the most uh, skeptical Tories think that it's caused unemployment there. It hasn't. Well, I don't actually. I don't think unemployment is the right issue. I think it's employment, and I think it's the difficulty it it causes for people with low skills to get the experience and the first step into the labor market. I find it strange that people who and you may not be in this group, you may not be in this group, but people who. Uh, obviously point out the eagerness with which businesses substitute capital for labor uh, and foreign workers for American workers somehow think that that's not going to happen if we artificially raise the wage. So I don't uh, understand. Well, let, let, I don't accept let, that empirical evidence. There's a lot of evidence on the other side, and I would suggest right. – let, let, let me just come back at you on the, the second part of that. Uh, the uh, I mean there, there are two things that would go on. One is that – uh, businesses would experience increase in some of their costs on the on the wage side, but they would also experience uh, uh, customers with more money coming through the door. And my view, as a matter of employment theory, is that businesses hire workers when they need them. If they have more business and they're expanding, then they'll hire more people, and they will pay the minimum wage. Now, on the question of bringing in foreigners. The, Not bringing in farms, moving factories overseas, all the things well, that, well, well, that have happened. Factories, if, 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 that's a tradable goods issue. Most of this, most manufacturing is so far above the minimum wage is not going to be affected by this. No, I'm not suggesting it would be. I'm not suggesting it would be. I'm suggesting – We're looking at the, at the overwhelming number of jobs which are, 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 are service jobs, basically non-traded sector, non-movable. And the question is would you bring in – would, would – uh, what would be the effect of a higher minimum wage on the incentive to bring a low-wage immigrants into the market? The answer to that is that if you have a job which is paid decently enough so that a uh, documented worker, a citizen or a permanent resident will take it, then you have no incentive to bring in an, uh, uh, an undocumented immigrant to hold that job because you can't pay the you can't couldn't pay that person a cut rate wage and that is the reason why this is attractive to a certain uh type of i think very thoughtful and uh conservative who are very concerned about the uh, about maintaining uh uh the american labor market for uh american workers uh, so that in fact it would discourage uh the use of of brokers and uh and uh, shady labor contractors to bring in people to fill jobs at cut rate wages and i think and i think they're right about that i think it would have that effect yeah but you missed my point my point was that 
we, we see from lots of evidence that businesses are very willing and able to change the mix of labor to capital when capital gets relatively attractive and when outside, when overseas workers get relatively attractive, that's part of the reason that people move factories overseas to suggest that right, but when it, again, the, again, you're coming back to the, to the, to the factory issue. There's they, nothing to do with the no, factory no, issue. It no, has no, to do no, with well, how the, firms the, behave. The, the, it's well, firms are sensitive. Yeah, that's right. that's firms right. are I, sensitive gonna, to wage rates. I'm going to give. I'm going to give you a different theory of how firms incorporate new technology, uh, and I can give this were a more technical discussion and give you the references on it. But fundamentally, what firms do is they apply the established rate wage rate to the best technology, which may well be a labor-saving technology, but they will save money on adopting that technology, whether they're paying a relatively high or a relatively low wage to the workers that they have. There is, I think, no good reason to think that there is a kind of a flexible frontier of the textbook variety between what we'll call capital and labor. That's a, 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 there's a high-level theoretical discussion around that, which I'm sure you're aware of, but uh, I would take the position uh, that, in fact, the wage rate is not an important determinant of whether firms uh, move to a more advanced technology because, in fact, they'll make money by by moving to that technology even if they're paying a relatively low wage. Yeah, well, so we'll they agree do to it. disagree on that. I'm going yeah. to move on to a, a last topic as, we, as we're as we getting close to the end of time. Um, maybe we can find something we, we're more uh, – we can agree on a little bit easy, more easily, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and that's the relationship between the – of government and the financial sector. We started off talking about how the financial sector has driven a, a, a good chunk of inequality, both spatially and sectorally. Uh, how much of that do you think is um, due to the privileges that sector has accrued? And uh, what would you want to do about those? Uh, well, it, a great deal of it is due to privileges asserted and conceded to the financial sector. Uh, deregulation in the 1990s, desupervision in the 2000s, which permitted uh, a great many practices that would have been suppressed in an earlier period and should have been suppressed. Practices that were frankly financial fraud and which have been uh, given a, a legal impunity which they did not enjoy in the 1990s. Uh, in the aftermath of the savings and loan debacle under first under Reagan in the late 80s and then under the first Bush, uh, the government prosecuted a whole uh, spectrum of financial criminals and sent a thousand of them uh, to federal prison for, in some cases, extended periods of time. Uh, Nothing like that has happened in the wake of the far more severe um, fraudulent practices which came to dominate the financial sector in the 2000s. And so one of the great, um, one of the one of the most, I think, cataclysmic failures uh, of the federal government, and I'm speaking of the present administration uh, especially, has been its unwillingness uh, to come to grips with the problem of the basic integrity of financial practices. And the problem there is a, it's a market problem. If people don't believe their financial institutions are, are, are trustworthy, they are not going to extend, uh, you know, permit them to have resources uh, over and above what is insured by the, by the FDIC. They're going to be extremely careful. They're going to be staying much more liquid and much safer assets 
uh, than they would otherwise uh, be willing to uh, to do. Well, I'm and sad that, and sorry to say that we fixed that by extending the FDIC beyond the letter of the law and by bailing out institutions that weren't covered by the FDIC. And that's the, FD, the FDIC was the best performing of the agencies in the crisis. Agreed. Uh, uh, and I, I think uh, Sheila Baer's book is really an excellent account of of, of the role that it played. Uh, but uh, uh, so I'm not. If you have deposit insurance accompanied by uh, in, adequate, in, you know, effective enforcement, it, to my mind, that's okay. It's where you have uh, the bailout of an institution and of shareholders and of people who have capital, which was at risk uh, and deliberately put at risk, who are the beneficiaries of fraudulent practices. That's where you run into, I think, the the the, the, um, the deeper problem. Well, especially the creditors of those institutions who got were made whole, weren't required to take a haircut. The FDIC was one of the only institutions that did require it, and it did it, I think, in maybe one important case, but most of the time. Uh, creditors were were um, spared, which I think has been a terrible mistake. Uh, we can agree with that. The shareholders of uh, of insolvent banks uh, should be um, they should take the loss, and then you start you, you start again with uh, uh, with the assets that are that continue to retain their value. Uh, let's close and talk about economics as a as a discipline. Uh, do you think economists have learned anything from this crisis, and what should they have learned? Because I think I know the answer to, your, to the first part. I, I'm, I'm waiting for evidence. Um, I, what I would have liked to see was an opening up of the uh, of economics departments to a much more to a genuinely wide ranging uh, discussion of these issues. But so far as I'm aware, the first appointment to a so-called top department of someone who was a true dissident from the prevailing orthodoxies before the crisis has not yet occurred. The first one, um, so far as I'm aware, nobody has been brought in from the cold as a result of this. And that is, uh, uh, it just tells you how far the management of economics is from being a true marketplace of ideas. My guest today has been James Galbraith. James, thanks for being part of EconTalk. A real pleasure. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.